Homily for the Second Sunday of Ordinary Time. St. Mary's Church, Grand Forks, January 20th, 2019. We are called to pray for pro-life causes all year long, but this time of year the Church especially asks us to do so. January 22nd, the sad anniversary of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, has been designated as a day of protection and prayer, a day of prayer for the protection of unborn human life and the legal restoration of the gift of human life. Our bishops invite us to join with them in prayer and fasting on this day. And this is something that I heartily recommend to each and every one of you as well. Sometime back, a Catholic magazine to which I had subscribed ran a cover story entitled The First Vocation Crisis, How the U.S. Bishops Are Addressing Marital Decline. This article contains some jaw-dropping statistics. For example, the number of Catholic marriages in the U.S. has gone down by over a third in the past two decades. In some cases, this is due to a general lapse in the practice of Catholic faith, among young adults, but an equally disturbing trend is the resistance to being married at all. I remember seeing an interview with a high-profile Hollywood couple who were, surprise, unmarried but cohabitating. The woman who had been raised Catholic said, we do not need a piece of paper to prove our love for one another. Incidentally, not long afterwards, they split up. I say this not to gloat, because the whole situation belies such a level of sadness and ignorance. Her comment illustrates the mistaken notion that marriage is only defined in external characteristics. It also reveals a mistrust of God's plan, to unite people as husbands and wives in a covenant relationship that no one on earth can dissolve. Instead, many act as though this cannot be possible and so will only give a part of themselves to one another, making sure that the escape door remains open as soon as the going gets rough. At a wedding mass, we use a prayer for the nuptial blessing, which states that marriage is an age-old calling that goes back to the foundations of humanity. From it flows family life and the potential of service for the Lord. The Catholic Church swims against the current of culture, not only by upholding the sanctity of the vocation of marriage, but by conducting a comprehensive pre-marriage program for engaged couples, by incorporating tools such as natural family planning and Pope St. John Paul II's teaching on spousal love, we are raising the bar when so many in society are resigned to lowering it. This is our way of remaining honest about Christ's clear teaching on marriage, as well as to give couples the help they need, not just to hang on, but to thrive and grow in holiness. We must not think of Jesus in the role of a bachelor, uncommitted and fancy-free. Christians soon came to see that Jesus embodied the love of a husband in his total gift of self. He joined himself to the church to present her to the Father without blemish or defect. Marriage was good and necessary before, but Christian marriages are so much more powerful. Husbands and wives receive the commission not only to love one another, 
but to communicate the love between Christ and his church to the world. And they receive the graces they need to be generous, faithful, and open to new life. Isaiah tells us in today's first reading that no more shall people call you forsaken or your land desolate, but you shall be called my delight and your land espoused. The word made flesh has by the Father's will espoused himself to us, and the crowning moment of this self-gift was the cross. How would that have been possible unless we were the love of his life? It is no coincidence, then, that in the context of a wedding feast, Jesus manifested his glory by performing the first of his signs. Therefore, at Cana, he exalted marriage as a divinely established institution that he would raise to a higher dignity than ever. Last Sunday, during the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, I was able to point to a beautiful mural depicting the scene. Today, I can do the very same thing. For the second luminous mystery. Look closely at the painting and you will notice that one of the jars is blue at the top. It still contains water. The artist chose to unfold the miracle in a progressive way, as though we, like the spectators in the background, were watching it happen in real time. That's kind of a tangent, I know, but I like to point that detail out. It is magnificent that we have a parish church in which there is so much artwork to reinforce the teachings of our faith. Do not take it for granted. There are several points that stand out for me in today's gospel. First of all, Jesus did not produce something out of nothing. Rather, he took a good thing and changed it into another good thing. Scholars in the early church drew a comparison here with the faith of the people of the Old Testament compared to the faith of Christians. Before the coming of Christ, a great many of God's people sought to live lives of virtue and uprightness. They had the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets and psalms to help them. Jesus did not abolish any of these, but completed them in his ministry. Now, we as Christians no longer need to drink only the water of former times, but we also have the wine of the gospel, because of the light of the Holy Spirit shining through Christ's body, the Church. St. John makes sure that we appreciate the quality of the wine Jesus provided. This always reminds me that I did not grow up in a family of experts when it came to discerning fine wine. The same bottle of Mogan David Concord grape sat in the back of our fridge for what seemed like years. It was, when, it was what we served when special company came to visit, but I doubt that it got much better with age. I suspect, though, that pretty much everyone at the wedding in Cana could tell that the water turned into wine had a special flavor, an excellence that made any other vintage seem like swill in comparison. The headwaiter's reaction is humorous. Why on earth, he asks, did the bridegroom hold back such a magnificent wine until the end, when many of the guests were too inebriated to tell the difference? The bridegroom could only shrug his shoulders until he found out what his friend Jesus had done to prevent an embarrassing situation. Also consider for a moment the amount of water that Jesus changed into wine. These six stone jars must have been enormous. Filling them meant hauling all that water from a well, not just turning on the tap, a laborious task to say the least.
It's surprising that we do not hear any grousing from the servants, but instead a ready compliance with Jesus' directions. Maybe there was something so captivating about him already that they trusted him unreservedly and would be willing to do what seemed pointless upon his mere request. Certainly, the confidence Mary had in her son inspired them. We learn that there could have been as much as 180 gallons of wine. To put that number into perspective, the average wine bottle at a store holds 750 milliliters. A little over five bottles equal one gallon. Now imagine the space that 900 bottles of wine would occupy. Was the wedding that large? By no means. This is one example of how St. John uses details in order to illustrate the divinity of Christ. The Lord did not intend to do the bare minimum. He apparently went overboard, but this was to prove that God, whose blessings are overabundant, was truly at work. We do not worship a stingy God. Today, let's pray that all who profess faith in Jesus will see marriage as a blessed gift that is the only suitable means for a man and woman to express the lifelong love to which God has called them. As for all of us, whether we are married or not, the following questions apply. What is our level of trust? Do we trust God a lot, a little, or maybe not at all? What is the evidence of this in our daily routines? Will we seek to abide with our generous God, trusting that there is no better way to live than for him to abide in us? Will we take the risk to follow where God would lead us?